So a little bit earlier, is it, is it working? Can, can everybody hear me in the back? Can you hear me? Put your hand up at the back if you can hear me. Great, great, thank you. So earlier this evening somebody asked me, so what are you going to talk about tonight? <laughs> and uh, actually our, our um, way of practice is, is to not prepare. <laughs> and as I was sitting here, I was thinking, oh, when I arrived, there's this nice little table here where you can put your notes. And, and I was sitting here, this sense of, oh, there's a space, the space of unknowing between me and all of you, not knowing what will arise out of the space. And it can be, um, sorry, it can be quite a, a nerve-wracking experience <laughs> to um, you know sit in front of a large group of people and not know what you're going to say. <laughs> but uh, there's also a certain beauty to it because the, you know, the Dharma is, it is present. You know, it isn't something that's, although there are the suttas, there are the the tripitaka and there are the the, the teachers. And there's the history, you know, of the of the sangha, over thousands of years, two thousand five hundred and plus years. The the dharma is is always is always here, it's always arising now. It's never. You can never really know it from. You know, from a history book. So. You know, over the years, I've come to trust that. Um, the the receptivity of the people I'm with, and the environment. You know, I'm very aware this environment is is a is a environment of dhamma. You know, it's, you feel it as soon as you come in through the gates. Oh, it's peaceful. It's still. It's got a depth. It's very beautiful. It's dhamma, and it's also people who've respected the earth. You can feel that too. It hasn't been messed around. It hasn't been abused. As so much of the of our planet has been, so you know, it's, it's trusting that out of that space in in this relationship, the Dharma will arise, and what people need to hear will be heard, perhaps, and uh, or perhaps not. You know, we we don't know, and and this is really the place. This is life. You know, life, this is how it is in life. We make plans, you know, we, we have an idea of what we want to do, we have an idea of who we are, where we're going, where we want to get to by however many years' time or weeks' time or whatever. And that's all, that's all valid and useful. It, it's good to have a, a direction and I, I wouldn't be here on the West Coast if I hadn't had a, a, an aspiration to see a nun's monastery develop. Um, and, it, and it wasn't particularly my plan actually to come to California. I had, had plans to go to somewhere else, but this is where the, the support was and the interest was. So I, I come over here and uh, well, we come over here, a small group of us. And then I find, God, I really love it here. <laughs> this is a great place to live. You know, and, and not, not only just do I feel happy in this place, but just, I had no idea, as I said earlier on, I had no idea that, the, that there were so many people interested in, in Dharma. And in practice, it's it's really something special. And when I said that <coughs> earlier on, <coughs> I noticed a lot of people looked very puzzled at me. <laughs> so for you, it's obviously kind of normal to, to you know, that there is so much interest in in the practice. Uh, 
But it isn't, it isn't so common in the world, actually. This is a quite a remarkable area. And as a nun to come over here, it feels like very fertile ground. It's this wonderful. People with, with uh, many years of experience or people who are new and interested. You know, there's, there's such a richness of experience and practice here. So this, this all helps to create the field within which we are now. You know, this room which has been used for practice for so many years, decades. And, you know, I don't know many people here. There's, there's a, literally like a handful of people who I know here. So, but I, I kind of get the sense that there are probably people here who've been practicing also for a long time. And when we bring all these elements together, you know, it does create an environment that supports awakening. So... <coughs> So we're very fortunate to have these conditions coming together now. And in a way, I mean, I don't know how it is for you, because like I say, people looked kind of surprised or baffled when I said how extraordinary it is to see so many practitioners. And, and it can be that we just take for granted what we have. And we just think, well, this is normal, you know. Oh, you go to the Monday night class, and then I can go to this on that night, and then I go to that, and that teacher. And, sit with so-and-so and then do another retreat, a third one this month, this year, and, you know. <laughs> we can live like that and sort of take it for granted. But it, this is actually an incredible opportunity. This is really very special to have this opportunity. So we have the support, you know, and I guess everybody here has enough like material support, that there's nobody, I'm imagining that, that, that this, uh, there's nobody here that Buddhist Global Relief is going to be providing food aid to, you know, that you have a meal, you have food in your refrigerators, and you have, you have a refrigerator, and you have a house maybe, or, a, or an apartment that that refrigerator's in, you know, kind of imagining. And, uh, you know, you have clothes to wear, and... You can make your apartment warmer or cooler. You know, you, you, imagining that we have pretty much quite a good conditions to live in, everybody here. There might be, I might be wrong about that, but that's my sense when I look around the room. So we have the material support we need and we have the spiritual support. And then it's up to us to really apply our minds so we can really take things for granted so easily, you know. And then the, the practice becomes like a, like a condiment to our life. A nice little bit of flavouring, you know. But actually the practice is, so far as I'm concerned, is, it's uh, the essence of life. It's the, it's the purpose of life. It's the potential of our life. So, you know, if, if we're spending our lives <coughs> just following one pleasure after another, even our pleasures might become more refined, less um, coarse, less, less gross. But just still, if we're just following one pleasure after another, another, another beautiful 
um, outfit or another delicious meal or another um, maybe even it can even be another retreat you know even our retreats can become another kind of sense pleasure you know if we're living in that way we're kind of missing the point so it's not to say you know, I'm a nun so I've chosen to to give up a lot because I, I sort of recognize that there's something really precious to be found when I'm not running after this and that and I did plenty of that when I was younger. I did, even though I, I joined the monastery when I was quite young, I did, uh, you know, seek satisfaction in many places before I ordained. And and I, I never really found it for very long. I could find it for a little while, or I could even find it kind of continuously for a while. But it was very much dependent on these conditions staying as they are. Then everything will be okay. And then something in my heart knew, well, this isn't it, you know, don't, don't settle for this. Because however good this is, however lovely this is, however happy you feel in this situation, you're de it's dependent on this situation. And I just couldn't rest with that. And there's something in me that just wanted, an, I, I, I want to have that peace of heart where whatever situation I'm in, I can come back to that place in my heart and know this is a place of of safety, this is a place of clarity, this is a place of kindness as much as possible. And that that, that, that freedom and happiness, it's like I knew that, that this is the place to look, right here in my, in my own heart. And certainly when I looked there, that wasn't what I found. I found a lot of instability, confusion, fear, desire, you know, all of those things which you might be familiar with. <laughs> and so something in me was saying, you know, this is the place, this is the place where you can find freedom, right here in your own heart. So look at what's stopping that, look at what's obstructing that. And uh, I'm sure many of you are familiar with in the, in the the Buddhist path, we talk about the, the, the refuges. We take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha, the three refuges. When I first heard this term refuge, I was kind of, well, what does that mean, you know, refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha? And it was only as I noticed the refuges I was taking, so like refuge in relationship, refuge in food, <coughs> refuge in distraction, you know, refuge in being somebody, being a certain kind of somebody. You know, it's when I started to notice, oh, I'm taking refuge in all of these things and they're just not bringing me any happiness at all, or very little, not long enough, you know. And then I started to look, well, what does it mean, you know, what, what is this taking refuge, which I'm doing anyway, I'm anyway taking refuge, just, just taking refuge in the wrong things. So what, is it, what does it mean to take refuge in, in the Buddha? What does it mean to take refuge in, in awareness, in awakenness? It's quite a, a leap of faith, actually. Because it feels, you know, in some ways it would feel much safer if I had that nice table in front of me with some notes. You know 
take refuge in that then, that would be much safer. But actually I'm taking refuge in awareness, so I'm trusting that something will come through in this moment if the mind is open and present. And you know, when we take refuge in awareness, it's not that life is suddenly becomes all lovely, you know, we don't experience physical pain anymore, you know, everybody loves us and people are nice to us at work, and you know, it, <laughs> it doesn't mean that everything changes on the external, but it means that we can meet it, we can meet life, however it is, whatever it brings, whatever it presents us with, we can meet it with awareness and we can feel what happens. So, you know, sometimes what we meet is, is frightening and our hearts close and we, f we defend ourselves, we become a separate defended self who's not going to let that happen and there are, there are, you know, there's, a, there's a reason for that, that's, that's part of the survival mechanism of, the, of a human being or of a living being, a sentient being. So that's not a, it's not wrong for that to happen, but in the path of awakening we're learning to see what's going on. So rather than just reacting blindly, just following whatever, whatever feelings that arise, we're actually learning to, to, to turn back here into the, to our own hearts, to our own experiential hearts, minds, citta. Some of you might be familiar with the word citta, meaning heart, mind. You know, we, we learn to turn back here and, and know what's, what's happening here. So as long as we don't know, then we're just like, you know, we're like a ship without a rudder. This wave comes and we go that way, wind blows and we go that way. You know, we're just constantly drifting around on the ocean of samsara. But when we get to know our own mind, as it is, not, not, in it, not as some lovely way that we'd like it to be, but as it is, <laughs> in its imperfection. As we get to know that, then it's like, it's like we, we ha we, you know, we're, we're steering the ship. We're no longer just drifting from one thing to another, lost in our thoughts and feelings and emotions. There's clarity, there's a sense of steadying. And, and being with, and sometimes that means being with great storms or terrible weather or great, you know, burning heat of desire. It can be all of those things, that's part of what we have to weather on this journey of life. But when we have refuge in the Buddha or refuge in the awakened mind, refuge in awareness, then you know, we, we are steering our way through, we're, we're with what is happening and we're no longer lost in it. So we have some choice. We have a, a choice how we respond. You know, we don't have to just follow desire endlessly. And it's, it's interesting living in a, in a monastery, in a monastic situation, because we have so little opportunity to follow desire, it's very, very limited, <laughs> extremely limited. Um, and it's about the only thing is, is eating, and that's limited. 
as you know, on the door is Sister Ananda Bodhi, no dinner. <laughs> made me laugh. <laughs> no dinner. I was wondering actually if anyone's going to turn up. Sister Ananda Bodhi, no dinner. It didn't sound very attractive. <laughs> so, so we don't have dinner in the monastery. We have a meal in the morning. And, you know, that's when he, when he first comes in, well, actually, that's it. And we have it in an alms bowl. We don't even have it kind of laid out on the table all night with silverware. It's all there together in your alms bowl. And, you know, it can be like all of the desire that's been churning away for years in your life, it just gets focused on that. That's all there is, you know, the colours, the textures, you know, and you start to get kind of obsessive around what you find in your alms bowl and whether oh, there's too much of that, they put that, they shouldn't be touching that, you know, more. You know. <laughs> it starts to become a bit crazy, really. And then you say, oh, this is, this is the desire mind, you know, it's, it's seeking satisfaction in, in something. And, and there aren't many options <laughs> in the monastic life. So, so we have a chance to really get to see the, the workings of that, you know. And uh, in, in England, we're in our monastery, in Amravati Monastery in England, there's a, the, the food is laid out on a servery. And I'll talk about food because you're going to have no dinner, <laughs> sorry. But it's all laid out on a kind of long servery and, and often it's, it's very uh, delicious. People say if you want to have a good meal, go to Amravati Monastery. <laughs> it's very good food. And, and quite almost like a banquet every day there. So, and, and you're supposed to collect the food in mindful and, and quiet and you put it into your bowl. And it's, you know, you're not supposed to take too much and you're not supposed to be greedy and all this stuff going on. Blah, blah, blah. And, <laughs> and you're being watched by about, well, on a weekend, by maybe like one or two hundred people as you collect your meal. So, you know, it gets to be a bit of a lady situation. <laughs> and, uh, but the, the, the beauty of it is you really get to see the desire mind because it's all just focused on that and, and people are looking <laughs> and you've only got one chance to go down that, that food line. You can't go twice. You can't go back for seconds. And you're supposed to eat everything that's in your bowl, so you've got to kind of get it right. You know? <laughs> so it's like all of those things, and you just get to see your mind going, coming out with all of these things, you know. I need, I want, I want more of that. She took the last one of those. And, you know, you get to see all of this, this stuff that the mind throws up around desire. And, and then, you know, if you, take, if you take too much, then you find yourself asleep through part of the afternoon and you've missed that wonderful opportunity. You know, you think, God, I've given my life, you know, I've given up everything to be in a monastery and then I eat too much and go to sleep. This is crazy. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's how it can be in the, in the beginning, in the early days, because the, the, the momentum of desire is so strong and it's limited. Or it might be aversion, you know, you might have a lot of aversion and you, you know, living with, with good people, everybody keeps like you know, the ethical, basic ethical precepts and renouncing precepts and, you know, harmlessness and generosity and, and then you start to find fault with people, you start to complain and feel irritated. And, uh, you know, we have quite a nice, it's not, it's not like super luxurious, but it is quite a nice place to live. It's quite beautiful there. And, you know, you start to find fault with it. Oh, the bed's too hard, or the, 
the rooms are too small, or you can hear that person next door all the time. And, you know, you start to find fault because that's the, the, the aversive mind will do that. It'll, it'll go out and look for things that are wrong and hold on to them and, and you know, get, it, get its teeth into them and, and be right about it. It is wrong, it shouldn't be like that, she shouldn't be like that. And so the, the, our training is to actually to, to, be with, to, to be with things as they are, you know, and to, and to see, okay, there's, I have enough food for the day. I have a roof over the head for the night. I have clothes to, for modesty and for warmth and to protect from mosquitoes and so on. I have clothes. And medicine, you know. Um, <coughs> this might sound a bit extreme, but the, the Buddha actually gave the... Uh, he, he spoke about the most basic for, for monastics, the mo to, have them, to be to content with the most basic standards. So if you're content with the most basic, you can still have more than that. It's not to say you shouldn't have more, but if you grow, if you develop contentment with the most basic, then you, you don't find yourself complaining so much. So for medicine, the most basic medicine he recommended was fermented urine. <laughs> so fortunately I've never had to use that, but you know, you kind of, it does give a perspective when you think, oh, no, I really need this very special, and it grows in the Himalayas, and I, I must have that particular berry for my vitamin supplement or whatever. You know, it, it just gives you a perspective. It's like, okay, is, have you got good enough medicine to take care of this body that it can keep going, that it can be a vehicle for the practice? Because that's what it's for. And it can be a, a vehicle for sense pleasure, of course. And, and for many of us it is, for many people it is. But it's the potential of it is to be a vehicle for awakening. You know, we can follow sense pleasures endlessly, 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 and have some gratification for a while until that wears off and we find ourselves looking for the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. You know, we can do that endlessly, there's, there's no end to that. Because, you know, when we seek satisfaction or, or lasting happiness in something that isn't lasting, if we look for satisfaction and lasting happiness in something that isn't lasting, we're going to be disappointed. It's kind of obvious, isn't it? And yet we do it again and again. So, taking refuge in awareness you know, we're taking refuge in, in, in what is actually most beautiful, I have to say. It's, it's the most beautiful and the most safe and the most blessed that we could ever find. And it's always right here. It is the, the mind that is clear and aware and can see desire, can see aversion, can see confusion. You can see all of the all of the mind states that arise and pass away. It is not uh, what we can call me or mine, but it, it never leaves us at any moment. It's always here, right here at this moment. There is awareness. There is bright, clear awareness, and we are all we are all we are all in that. You could say, you know, there is this awareness within which all of this is arising. We are. The sense of me 
being here, me, me and mine, arises within that <coughs> clear space of awareness. So the thinking mind is a, is a very useful tool and uh, we can develop that and skill with the thinking mind. But it it's, is also limited and it does, um, it has a lifespan, you know. Like when we're, when we're little babies, we just come out of the womb. It's like that, that the, the clockwork up here isn't really working that well. There's a sense of, of being. You're kind of taking it all in. Wow. All of these things. It's all amazing. It's all new, you know. So you're not kind of logically working things out and da 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 da. You don't even know what's, whether you're, where you begin and end. It's just this, this whole experience of taking in everything. And then as we grow older, this sense of separation starts to happen. Me and mum, separate, oh, separate, gosh. We're not, mum isn't an extension of me, like I thought she was. She does things that I don't want her to do sometimes, you know. Or maybe a lot of the time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we gradually we get, to, we get to experience ourselves as separate and, and that the world doesn't do what we want. It isn't, it isn't under our control as we would like it to be. And then, you know, gradually we get, you know, we get to define things. This is a, well, we might call it a bowl, we might call it a bell, we might call it metal, we might call it hard, we might call it sound. There's many things you can call it. But we start to define things. And then, the, you know, this is the, this is the, the rational cognitive mind. And it's useful, it has a purpose, it's, it's uh, important. And you know, as we get older, I think many people experience memory starts to go a bit. Can't remember things so well as we used to. And you know, for some people, maybe the, the you know, maybe start to experience dementia. Well, and the, you know, the, even the, the sense of who we thought we were starts to change. And that, that can happen to any of us. It's not, it's, it's just one of those things. It can happen to any, any of us. So the, the, this, is, this is working on the, the, the brain and the thinking mind. So this is like, it's a useful tool and it has its lifespan and it, it at some point is no longer useful to us anymore. But the awareness itself is, is always useful, it's always valuable, it's always a path of freedom, a here and now, it, it, it's always that. So uh, in our monastery in England, when I first went to live there in the early 90s, um, I had two very wonderful teachers. One was a woman in, who was 86, who had Alzheimer's, who lived there, and the other was a woman who was 90, who was profoundly schizophrenic. Who lived there, and uh, the the woman with Alzheimer's. She had been a very bright, very witty, intellectual Dhamma teacher when she was younger, and she taught at some of the very big um, venues in Britain, and was had written articles and so on. and And I met her when she her mind had already kind of <coughs> gone. You could say she 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 was still had a good sense of humour. But she didn't have the, the intellect that she had had. 
So what you what you noticed was, you know, what you know what she'd actually cultivated in her heart, because that was what was left. And mainly she had relied on her intellect. Actually, she'd done some cultivation of the heart, but mainly because she was a very bright woman, she had been. She'd mainly relied on her intellect. And then as the as the mind sort of deteriorated, what was left was, you know, the what we in Buddhism we call the kilesas, partly, you know, the the um, fears and irritations and um, covetousness, you know, these kind of things. And so, so we would sort of teach her about generosity, you know, how how lovely it is actually when you when you share what you have, rather than keeping all those cookies in your mm. in your uh, tin, <laughs> cookie tin, if you share them. You share that you share the pleasure of them with others, and that's much, much better, you know. And then she'd start to start to experience that and start to really enjoy it. Oh, yeah, so it is. And how lovely! But the kind of automatic thing was to go back in, you know, the, what she, without, without that guidance, she would just go back into these are mine. I'm going to keep them for myself. You know, if I share them, I won't have enough for me. That was the way her mind was working because she had relied on the on the intellect and hadn't really enough. Uh, developed her heart. <coughs> but fortunately, you know, she had good people. She lived in a monastery and she had good people around her. So she still, even even as an old lady with Alzheimer's, she still was able to cultivate her heart. It's, ne it's never too late, actually. So, uh, she was my, one of my teachers. I really was very grateful. I learnt a lot from her when I first went to live in the monastery. And the other old lady who lived next door to her, who actually died the, the winter that I was there, she uh, had very quite profound schizophrenia. And, she, you know, she, she could be very, very wacky. She could experience very, very strange things and, and speak about very, very strange things. And the reason she was in the monastery was because um, when Ajahn Samedo first went to live in London with three other monks, there was a point where they weren't actually getting enough donations to pay the bills. And it looked like they were going to have to just close up the, the Vihara and go back to Thailand because there wasn't actually the support there. And when this, this woman heard about it when she was younger, she, uh, she was very concerned that the Sangha did, was able, the monastic Sangha was able to stay in the country. And she had her, her prized possession was her grand piano. She played the grand piano. And so she sold her grand piano to pay the bills so that the Sangha could stay in London. And thanks to her, the, you know, all of these monasteries and branch monasteries have been established because if she hadn't done that, the, the, the monks would have gone back to Thailand and who knows, it may be that there would never have been these uh, many branch monasteries in the West of, of the Ajahn Chah lineage. So she did a very great thing very generous, and you know, it, was, it was a lot, it was a big thing for her to do. She, this was her prize, <coughs> most treasured possession. So uh, she was a woman who had great faith in the, in the Sangha, in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, those who practice, those who practice well, those who practice directly, those who practice with integrity. This is like the, the meaning of, of the Sangha. So it's not saying robes or not robes, but it's talking about the quality of practice and insight. So she had great faith in the, in the triple gem, in the three jewels. And um, although she had this very crazy mind, her faith never wavered, really. 
and uh, when she was dying, she uh, she had colon cancer, and she was incredibly patient. I was very very impressed with her patience with this painful illness, and uh, and she actually died with her with the sangha with, with the monks and nuns standing around her bed, chanting her favorite chants. And her favorite chants were the morning chanting, which goes through the, the kind of basic teachings of the Buddha, and the Buddha's words of loving kindness. So mm -hmm. her last breath was on the last word of the last chant. Mm -hmm. So, you know, <laughs> so the mind is, you know, is, a, is an interesting thing, you know, and, we, and in, our, in our Western culture, we, uh, we tend to we tend to glorify the thinking mind, the intellect, and it's certainly it is it is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful tool. There's no doubt about that. But it is a tool, and it, and it isn't who and what we are. However much we may develop it and cultivate it, but what we cultivate in our in our heart or in our chitta or in our being, you know, this is what's really really important, because this is what this is what we're left with. At, at the end of the day, is what we've cultivated here. So if we have the most brilliant philosophies and you know we can speak beautifully eloquently about wonderful subtleties of Dharma, but we don't know really generosity in our own heart, we're kind of missing a great opportunity. So the Dhamma is, is always present, is always here. So the qualities of the Dhamma are apparent here and now, timeless. Not bound by time, but here and now, timeless, encouraging us to come and see for ourselves. Ehi Pasco, come and have a look. It means, come and have a look, come and see. Come and see the Dhamma for yourself, it's here, it's here. Leading inwards or leading onwards, it sort of has both qualities. When, when we come and see, when we, when we come back here and we open our minds and we see the Dhamma, we see the changing nature of things, we see the, the unsatisfactoriness of our constant search for happiness in, in this thing and that thing and that experience. <coughs> When we see it, when we actually turn around and have a look and see it, you know, then, then the Dhamma is right there, it's right here. It's right here in the midst of our searching or in the midst of our suffering or in the midst of our wanting. Actually when we turn around and look, the Dhamma is right there in the middle of it, right in the centre of it. But as long as we're, we're following that wanting, that fear, that desire, that aversion, then, or that sense of, of self, then we're kind of missing it. We're missing the, the Dharma, which is right here at every moment. It's, it's right under our noses. It always makes me laugh. You know, we, we practice anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing in and breathing out. And I, I practiced this for some years before I kind of noticed that, my goodness, you know, this is like the, the best teacher that one can find, this breath. 
it's, it's, it's teaching everything. It has a beginning, it goes through a process, it reaches a maximum capacity, it starts to decrease again. It decreases until it finishes naturally. And then there's a little pause, which you could call, well, like a little death, where nothing's happening, or a resting place where nothing's happening, just for a moment. And then it starts again, another one begins and increases and gets to its maximum capacity and then it starts to decrease again until it ends. And then I realize, gosh, everything in the world, everything in the universe, everything is doing that. Everything that has a beginning goes through a process, it increases, it grows, it reaches, let's say, maturity, and then it starts to decline. And it goes through the process of, of kind of slow, gradual disintegration until it ends, until, it's, until it finishes, until it dies. And then there's a little pause, and then the next thing, whether that's a, you know, I'm not going to get into the whole rebirth thing, because some people might not be into that, but it could be rebirth, the next life, or it could be just the next process of this body. But then it becomes, you know, part of the earth. <laughs> Food for worms, nuggets. <laughs> which become food for birds, you know, and on and on, which eat the, which eat the fruit on the trees, which take the fruit and, and drop it, the seed from the fruit and drop it somewhere else, which help to plant the forest. It becomes part of that whole cycle, you know. So, you know, when we take these bodies to be me and mine and finite, then we experience suffering because they, they're, not, they're not ours. They're, they're, we're, we're, we're borrowing this, you know, this is like it's, it's happening. This thing is happening here. This body is, is happening at this time. And it's, it's, it's always been changing ever since the moment of conception. It hasn't stopped changing. And it will carry on changing until the breath leaves and the sense of me and mine leaves and it'll go back to the earth or wherever it goes, the ocean or the Whatever. And this is this is this body that we call me and mine. <coughs> so you know we identify with our thoughts, our minds, our thinking minds, our thoughts, <coughs> our feelings, our body. You know we identify with all these things, but they're they're constantly changing. <coughs> they they're never you can never pin them down. It's impossible. You can have a go. I mean, I encourage you, please have a go. Try to. Try to pin down a thought. Try to sustain a thought for a sitting of 30 minutes. You know, you sit and a thought comes up. And you think, oh. When you notice that, just have a go one, just once and see, can I keep that thought going for the next 30 minutes? <laughs> Try it and see what happens. <laughs> So you know when we when we when we take refuge in the Dharma, we're taking refuge in knowing the way things are, knowing the changing nature of things, knowing that we can't find satisfaction in the sense world, last, <coughs> lasting satisfaction. I want to be clear: we can find satisfaction for a little while, but lasting satisfaction, true peace and happiness, we can't find it. 
I won't so much encourage you to, to seek that one because I'm sure you've already had plenty of experience looking. You know, but just, just really notice, you know, next time you follow something really nice, just notice how long that pleasure is there for, you know, until the mind goes on to the next thing. Just pay attention to that. And as I mentioned before, the refuge in the Sangha. This, this can be, you know, you can think of it in different ways. And in, in, in America, the word Sangha is used quite um, in, a, in a kind of broader way than it's used in England. So here I am. This is the Monday, I think of this now, this is the Monday class Sangha. This is the Sangha that I'm sitting with now. And it's the community, it's the group, it's the coming together of people who are interested in or dedicated to practice. So this is this sense of Sangha. In, the, in England, the word Sangha isn't used so much in, in the lay context. So people would say, well, you, you know, the monastic Sangha and then there's the lay, lay, lay community. But here the word Sangha is used for you and for us. And the meaning of the word, as far as I'm aware, I might be a scholar, might be able to, to correct me, but as far as I'm aware, the word actually means community. So it's appropriate. It's a community of Dharma practitioners. So we can take refuge in, in you know, the, the fact of, of, of all of us, even though you might not think it's remarkable, but it is, all of us coming together to practice together, just for this evening even. The fact of this, this is like a refuge. We can support each other in doing this. It's much easier. It's, it's a great support to be able to practice together rather than just on our own. And then there's the monastic Sangha, which is like a, I see like a vehicle, which has kept the, the teaching alive over thousands of years. And that's a, a wonderful thing. But it is a vehicle. It isn't a, a magic, you know, it's not like you shave your head and put the robes on something magically happens and you become enlightened, you know, it doesn't work like that. Otherwise there'd be much more monastics, I'm sure. <laughs> but the, the true refuge in the Sangha is the refuge in the, the, those who have, those men and women, nuns and monks. So lay women, lay men, <coughs> nuns, monks, who have practiced and have had insight into the Dharma, who have seen clearly the, the, the arising and ceasing of things or the, um, the unsatisfactory nature of samsara, deeply, seen it very clearly, or the, the sense of, you know, this, this is not me and mine. So those who have penetrated the, the veil of samsara, even just for a little while, and seen really clearly, oh, before the karma comes back and you kind of get lost again. <laughs> this is like re taking refuge in the Sangha. So the, the, the Sangha is those who have practiced well, those who have practiced directly, or those who, there's not in the, doesn't have to be in the past, those who practice well, those who practice directly, those who practice with integrity, <coughs> those who give occasion for incomparable goodness to arise in the world, or a field of blessings. Sometimes it's described <coughs> as a field of blessings. I find this very beautiful. So when you come to a place where you know, your life is no longer revolving around protecting yourself, what you can get for yourself, what people think of you, 
you know, it's no longer totally oriented around me and mine, but it's, it's moved into a field of, of Dharma where you're willing to give up, you know, you're willing to give up what you want for something greater. You're willing to give up the small pleasure for that great pleasure, that great joy of, of having a refuge here in your own heart. You're willing to give up dinner, you know, for perhaps peace of mind, or if not peace of mind, then to see what the mind does when it doesn't get what it wants, you know. So this is this this, you know, the, the, it creates like a field of blessings. So when I come here to Spirit Rock and I, I look at what's, you know, what's here and what's what's happened over the years, the intention, the practice, the, the, the consistent, you know, people coming time after time to practice here, it creates a field of blessings. It creates a field, and you, as I say, you, know, you can feel it when you come in. Oh, it's, got a, it's got a beautiful feel. It, it, it lifts us up, it reminds us of our true nature. So when we take refuge in the Sangha, you know, it can be also in the, in the historical Sangha, in those, you know, right back to the time of the Buddha and the Buddha himself, those who have awakened, those who are enlightened, fully enlightened on the path, those who have glimpsed enlightenment, those who are free from greed and hatred, those who are working on, really, really working on, freeing themselves from greed and hatred. You know, who are, who are, they call it attenuating, like lessening the greed and hatred in the mind. So this is this is the sangha, the the, the fourfold sangha, the noble sangha. And I don't know, you know, it's, it's very rare in the world. To, it's very rare to meet somebody in the world who has, who is free of greed and hatred. You know, most of us are still pushed around by our desires and aversions. And this is what keeps us caught, really. This is, what's, this, is, this is the very thing that stops us from being fully free in every moment, is I want that and I don't want that. That's, that's what keeps us on the cycle of samsara. Moving towards this and away from that, towards this and away from that, towards this and away from that. And, you know, it just goes round and round and round and round. So the, you know, as I was saying, the place of refuge is, is opening to this moment as it is at any given moment or at every given moment. I was just speaking on the way here about uh, in the bookstore there, there is a, some pictures and uh, somebody's made a painting of the meeting of the, His Holiness the Dalai Lama with the Venerable Mahagosananda. So Mahagosananda was a, was a wonderful Cambodian monk in the Theravada tradition and uh, you all know I'm sure who His Holiness the Dalai Lama is in the Vajrayana lineage. And there was a, an event here where they met and they were each bowing to the other and each one tried to bow lower to the other one <laughs> to show their respect. 
So there's a lovely picture. I have the photograph actually in my, in my shrine of, of both of them bent over as far as they can, paying respects to, to one another. And uh, I've, ha I've had the very good fortune to, before Vidal uh, Mahagosandas died, I'm not sure how many years, maybe two or three years ago now. And uh, I had the very good fortune to meet him just three times in my life in the, in the monasteries where I lived when he visited. And it really struck me that this was, a, this was a human being who had no greed and no hatred, not, not, a, not, a, not a speck in his being. It's very, very beautiful. And he's, uh, well, he was, he's died now, you know, he was Cambodian. So he'd seen his country decimated by the Khmer Rouge. And I'm not sure whether all his family were killed, but certainly the majority of his family were killed by the Khmer Rouge and his, fam his um, country was ruined and Buddhism was kind of desecrated. So he had plenty of things to be angry about. But I, I recognised when I was with him, you know, he didn't have the slightest twinge of anger or even aversion. He was, he was open, present, joyful. Amazing. And also in terms of design, he didn't, he wasn't angling for this or that. He was just with life. He was just with life as it was, as it is. It's very, very beautiful to see that. So it's, you know, and, and His Holiness the Dalai Lama also. If any of you have had the chance to see him, I think he's coming later this month actually to uh, Santa Cruz and maybe Los, Los Gatos, maybe. So not too far. And you know, he also he's he also similarly actually has has great reason to be to have a, to have anger, resentment. You know, looking at what's happened to Tibet. But he's also someone who is free. He's free of aversion. He's free of desire. He does create a field of blessings around him. You know, so we look at these these people. We think, oh well, that's the Dalai Lama. You know, he's up there and. And uh, the Buddha was such a great being. But actually, if we do that, then we, 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 decide, we, um, you know, we, we, we trick ourselves into thinking that we can't wake up, that we can't liberate our hearts and minds. So don't fall for that, you know, <coughs> just don't fall for thinking that other people can do it, but I can't. But come back, look, turn your attention back here and look at, well, what's actually going on, you know? What is arising now? And what, what's happening to what's arising, you know, what's going on here? So whatever state will arise in your mind and heart, however convincing it will be, if you really pay attention, you'll just, you'll observe it arising, going through its process and ending just like the breath, just like the body, just like everything, just like stars, like everything. They're, everything's doing it on, on a different time scale, but everything's doing it. So if you pay attention and turn back here, then you'll find that the greatest teacher you could ever find is right here with you at every moment. Every moment. It's, it's, it's in the breath, it's in the body, it's in the changing mind, it's in the changing feelings. This is your most perfect teacher. 
but you need to turn your attention to it. It's just like any teacher, if you're looking out the window or you know, talking with your friends, you're not gonna you're not gonna hear the teaching. So you have to, you have to turn your attention back here and really honour that you have the most perfect teacher with you at every moment. And give it at least, you know, give that teacher that's with you every moment at least some time every day. At least some time. Since it's always with you. So I would like to offer that for your encouragement and, and really wishing you really well in your practice and that you really take this opportunity, this, this beautiful opportunity to free your heart and to make your life a source of blessings for yourself and for others. I really wish that. Thank you for teaching. Thank you. I just wonder, do you have chants that you do? Mm -hmm. What do you have? I, I would like to ask somebody else, to, even though I love chanting, but I'd like to ask somebody else who comes to this group regularly to lead a chant. May I do that? Would, is, would anyone volunteer <laughs> to lead a chant that you do? <coughs> would you do it? Would you? Well, that's all right. We can have it, we can have it with a cold. Would you? Okay. Give it a try. Thank you. I'll do the one that we do often, which is Namo. Um, and uh, it's from the um, we're greeting of Namaste. Most of you know this. And uh, one syllable for Namo, I bow to you. And uh, we say it nine times. Although I'm going to keep this away because I do have a cold. All right. Namo Namo
good night. So just one last little word just to say we love to have visitors at a local vihara in San